Hello and welcome. I'm Demir from Index Ventures, and this is Daily Consumer. This show is focused on highlighting startups that are improving how we experience our daily lives from the perspective of the founders behind them. You can learn more at daily-consumer.com. Have you ever wondered why brands mark up the price of items so much over what they pay manufacturers? On this episode, we dive into the world of e-commerce and Italic's innovative membership-based business model. Jeremy Kai, the CEO and founder, shares how his consumer-to-manufacturer approach results in premium products at astoundingly low prices. You'll learn how he came up with the idea and how his earlier startup experience gave him clarity on what kind of company he wanted to build. A big welcome to Jeremy Kai. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, how's it going? Well, appreciate you joining Daily Consumer. This is where I spend a bunch of my time talking to founders like yourself, hearing their inspiration to start different companies, hearing a little bit about their personal journeys. So I'd love to kick this conversation off, Jeremy, by learning a little bit more about your background and specifically hearing how you got into startups. Sure. So I have your classic tech background to a T, almost to a stereotype. So I grew up in Chicago. My parents were immigrants and my mom is actually an entrepreneur of her own. And when I went to school out east for college at a small school called Babson, I quickly kind of dropped out and moved to San Francisco as dropouts do and did everything from the Teal Fellowship to Y Combinator and and so on and so forth with my first company, which was called Fountain, originally called Onboard IQ, but later called Fountain, which was an enterprise HR software business. So so yeah, I think the short of it was uh, that business we really started as a company for us to get into startups in the first place. I think that was back in 2014 and 2015, really in the heyday of I think the height of hackathons where every university would be throwing one. And as a student, it was a great time to kind of learn and experience technology as a younger person who wasn't technical. It was a great kind of entry point for me. So met a couple people through that and learned about all these startups. And yeah, I think followed in my mom's footsteps and wanted to start a company of my own. So together with my co-founder at the time, Keith, we started Fountain. Amazing. And before we get into the Fountain story, I'd love to just backtrack and talk a little bit about the Teal Fellowship. This is something that is kind of revered and held in really high regard. And I'm curious if you could just explain a little bit about what that program was like and what made you want to participate in it? Yeah, <laughs> I'm laughing because I feel like the times have changed. I feel like back then in like 2015, I, I remember distinctly like there's a number of like well-known VCs we spoke with and, and also a couple like you know YC partners who ironically as the age I think of the average like YC founder and, and founder in general, I think is not necessarily trended down, but I think the distribution has grown, I think on both sides of accepting older founders and, and younger founders alike. I think the times have certainly changed in which I think back then it was like, hey, we don't back younger founders. We don't want dropouts. And it was kind of ironic. So the two fellowship, I think, is a great people who are already kind of bent this way towards whether it was starting a company of their own or doing something of the sort. So for people who don't know what it is, essentially, it's a fellowship where you get a $100,000 to essentially drop out of college and stay out for two years. And while it seemed like a lot of money, I think at the time it certainly did. It really is, if you think about it, 50K, 50K spread over two years and then tax that down with California state tax. You're really not left with too much, but really it's a justification for these, I think, unique individuals who previously might not have had justification to go to their parents or financial justification to stay out of college and really give them that reason to. And then also, I think it builds a really strong community where, you know, being a founder is really lonely, especially when you're young and new to it. 
I think it's a great program for like-minded individuals who are kind of quirky in their own way to uh, essentially have the free reign to try it out. I'll personally be forever grateful for that. I think the reason why I say it, it's changed is I think the bend used to be towards more of the hard sciences. And I think a lot of the earlier kind of batches prior to my year in 2015, I think were more bent that way. Whereas I think from my year onwards, I think it was more so focused towards people who were you know, interested in starting companies and, and startups of their own. So the qualifications were more focused around, can this person raise money? Do they fit the founder archetype? And so on and so forth. So I think like for me, it was instrumental in basically allowing me to stay out of college and convincing my stereotypical Asian parents to have something to point to that is just as hard to get into as Harvard. I think ultimately the biggest takeaway for me were the, the friends that we made along the way, which has been great. And I'm, many of the Teal followers I'm still really close with. Amazing. So it certainly sounds like much more than just the simple credential. That sounds like an amazing pool of people to be a part of and to learn from and to continue to have a relationship with as you further your career. I'm curious, is the Teal Fellowship how you found Keith? And is that how you discovered who you wanted to co-found a company with? Or could you just walk us through the early days of Fountain? Keith and I did everything wrong. Wrong by the books. So by the books, you're supposed to like grow up with your co-founder, like know them for a decade and whatnot. And Keith and I, we met on a Facebook group called Hackathon Hackers at the time, which was this like (laughs) massive group of young engineer or like tech wannabe people who were all in college or somewhat like close to college. And and I think I was working at a company called Ship at the time, which is like this high flying, like on demand shipping service. And it was an awesome product. But I think Keith and I, I think he was trying to find a couple ideas to work on. So Fountain really came about as a circumstance of good luck where we happened to run into each other and we got coffee and we kind of hit it off that way. And we basically decided to work together within like two days as opposed to, you know, spending the years together as you're supposed to and having that like childhood bond, if you will. But it worked out. I think we were very, very lucky in many ways in which we got along and still do to this day. But at the same time, it was very much like a function of circumstance. And I'd love to hear a little bit about how you and Keith decided to center in around this growing opportunity in the gig economy market slash hourly labor market. Sounds like you made an observation that hiring for employers in that broad field is something that's very tricky and very high volume. And so you decided to build the product to address it. We'd love to just hear how that idea came to life. Yeah, sure. The idea really came from, I would say, two things. One is that at the time with working at SHIP, we had been aggressively hiring you know, a number of drivers and delivery people to provide the actual service that we were trying to provide. And we were trying to run that through Lever. And when it didn't work through Lever, which is you know this white collar applicant tracking system, we, we ended up using Google Sheets. So I think for any product person out there thinking about it, it's like, okay, clearly there's a missing piece of this market. And I think the second part of it is, you know, when we just did a very rough calculation, it's like, hey, the vast, vast majority of not just the American workforce, but the Western workforce at large is blue collar. And the tools that serve that workforce are very, very antiquated. And frankly speaking, like for probably good reason, you know, not many engineers will ever experience that or not many product people or or founders will pay attention to that uh, spectrum, even though it's like a huge, huge market. I think we found it as like, oh, this is a great opportunity on demand at the time, like you mentioned, was really, I think, growing quite quickly. It was the early days of everyone trying to build another Uber for X, many of which we've since seen shutter down. But at the time, it felt like a gold brush and we wanted to build essentially the, you know, the pickaxes for it. I think if anything, it was like, to be honest, neither Keith or I 
were extremely passionate about the mission or kind of what we were building, but it was more so like, hey, like here's a perfect opportunity to start a company and see where it goes. And to be honest, like that's the worst reason to start a company. <laughs> it's I've learned along the way, like you really, really should be working on something you're generally or at least somewhat excited about. But I think for us, like we found a problem. It seemed like not many people were going after it. We had one competitor, two Stanford MBAs, who I think were a couple months ahead of us at the time. And for us, I think it was just all about hustle. You know, can we reach out to more people who can, you know, who can network harder into the startup world? Because all of our clients were startups at the time. And eventually it became a game of just like who can cross the chasm faster. So they eventually got acquired by Intuit. And I think like many (laughs) hats off to them for building a great business. But I think for us, it just taught us a lot of lessons about what it takes to build a startup, which not many people will talk about. It really is just like sweat, blood and tears. I think you can't have a very good like work-life balance. I think the startup will eventually consume like 99 plus percent of your time. But but yeah, it was a great, I think, entry point for us. Amazing. I'd love to hear a little bit around what that experience taught you about you know, the interests that you yourself want to pursue with the rest of your career. Maybe paint it a little bit differently. In this kind of world that we're in at the moment, it feels like investors are in such a frenzy to find and invest in software companies. Yet you decided to have your next company be a D2C e-commerce brand. I'm curious what the source of inspiration for that move was. I think um, back in 2015 to maybe 2017, the complete opposite was happening where people said like, hey, B2B is where you go to be safe and consumers where all the big exits are. And obviously, like that narrative is completely gone by now where consumers go to, I think, really follow a passion. And I think B2B is where you go to, you know, spring for the fences. The multiples these days are many, many, many times, you know, what they were. I remember we raised our seed round when we were doing like basically a million in ARR. And I remember like, wow, that was like, on the conservative side of what we could try to aim for for revenue when raising. And now it's like, hey, you know, pre-launch, you go for a seed. Even for a pre-launch, you go for an A. So I think the times really do change. And I do think the market is cyclical in which investors will prefer B2B until it's saturated. And then I'm sure inevitably it'll kind of waver over back to consumer and, and so on and so forth. So I think for Italic and Fountain, I think for startups, the first couple of years, no matter what you're doing is exciting, right? So you're you know, fundraising, you're, you're hiring the team, you're going to market, there's a lot of work to do, you know, you're setting all these foundational pieces. But I think when you're four or five years in, and hopefully you're doing well, and you're going from that 10, 20, 30 person team and going to like 50, 70, 100, that's when I think the passion part really has to play into your decision making a lot more. You know, it's hard to be pitching someone, whether it's an investor or a candidate on something that you yourself just don't have a lot of steam for. So I think for me, like that was the ultimate reason why I wanted to leave Fountain and kind of work on direct-to-consumer. It wasn't actually because it was direct-to-consumer. I want to preface by saying that. I think most times, I think when people like talk about direct-to-consumer commerce, it's like, hey, you either have to, I don't remember if like you and I talked about this, but I think it's either, hey, you have to identify a high margin opportunity or a product to sell online that isn't there yet, or it doesn't have significant competition. Or you have to find some product that like has some frequency of use to which there's all these heuristics that I think at the time, you know, a lot of so-called commerce investors or like DTC experts, if you will, would kind of push on you. And especially when you were fundraising, like you would see this all the time. And I'm not going to name names, but I think there's a lot of if you didn't fall under this playbook or this heuristic, like it was non-investable, even though like, frankly, it probably was a better business model to not be taking inventory in the first place. So I think for Italic, the ultimate idea like and why I'm personally passionate about it is it's, you know, my family's been in manufacturing for 40, 50 years. It's a horrible business. It's super competitive. Margins are razor thin. Some of the smallest margins you can probably find around 
your wholesale clients can leave you in a second. And I think the idea for Italic really came from, you know, the longer you spend in manufacturing, like we spent 40, 50 years, and uh, the more you wonder like, okay, I'm producing a finished product for someone else who is going to buy that from me, and I'm going to make maybe 15 to 20% margin on my cost of goods and labor. Someone's going to buy that from me and then sell it for 5, 10, 15x. And this is most egregious in kind of more premium consumer goods. So as a manufacturer, you kind of get to thinking like, hey, whoever owns the inventory owns the upside. But as a manufacturer, you really don't have any of the competencies necessary to like go to a customer, go even to a business. Like you'll rely on trading companies, you'll rely on distributors. So I think the genesis for Italic really came from one, the earlier days of e-com, people would talk about like, disintermediating the supply chain or removing, cutting out the middleman was the most common term, I think, thrown around. And I think that was actually really inspirational. And at the time, those middlemen that they would refer to were the retailers who have since been replaced by Facebook and Google. So the price points for customers are generally speaking the same. But I think more broadly for the idea for Italic was like, hey, if we remove the brand, but we can provide a similar level of customer service and product quality as a brand would or retailer would otherwise, can we actually empower our manufacturers to become merchants of their own? And then on the flip side, because we're removing the, the actual largest middleman, which is the brand, can we drop the price point significantly for the customer to which you know they might not actually be so brand loyal? And it becomes more of a value-driven or pricing-driven decision. So that was kind of the background with Italic. And I thought, like, hey, this is a great opportunity since I speak Chinese. I grew up in the States, but I spent a lot of time you know, early on in China. And I think like the Asians, specifically the Chinese and Southeast Asian e-com ecosystems, are really, I think they're around three to five years ahead of where we are in the West. Um, specifically, I think, like, it's interesting. In the West, like, e-com companies really aren't looked up to that much. I think, like, generally, as, as an engineer, you're not, like, that excited to be working on it. Probably because the experience is so boring and really hasn't, like, changed all too much in the past, like, decade. But the biggest companies, aside from Tencent in Asia, really are commerce-driven, whether that's Grab or, you know, Ali or Pindodor or, you know, whatever it is. And specifically, like, for us, I see where we are in the West as like maybe where China was in like 2015, where there was JD, there was you know, Tmall, and that was basically the extent of innovation. And I think for the next five years after that, there's a large wave of direct from manufacturer products. And this is a extremely like brand loyal audience where they care about the brands and the logos, but they would still purchase and they would make value driven kind of purchases straight from the manufacturer if it meant that they could retain the quality and design that was associated with that product. So I figured, hey, this is a great opportunity. I know B2B isn't for me, or at least the B2B software and the industry that I was working on isn't for me. And here's a you know chance to kind of take a leap of faith and, and try to do something similar to a trend that I saw happening in Asia that I think we could westernize quite aggressively. And it turns out that was very, very naive. It was much harder than <laughs> I think just saying that. It's just kind of funny looking back. But that was kind of the idea with Italic. I could only imagine you walking into a factory where millions of units of a skewer being produced, talking to the factory owner and telling them how you're going to revolutionize how they go about their business and how you can make them more money. I'm sure there were some skeptical glances cast your way in the early days that um, we can get into. But before we hop into some more of the italic details, I, I just wanted to comment on a few things. One, on the multiple side, you know, that's something that I can commiserate with. I do think we're in a period of tremendous multiple inflation right now for software companies. And I similarly share your perspective that that'll probably correct over time. On e-commerce, the reason why I spend so much time in it as an investor is because it's so relevant to all human beings, right? I mean, we're biological creatures. We have a recurring need for clothing, shelter, sustenance, and many other things that 
aren't purely just software. So I think the aggregate dollars to go after in commerce are just so large that it continues to you know, warrant being my priority and trying to keep a close eye on who's actually innovating. And then, you know, I guess a good segue into what you're doing. I think the thing that captivates me so much about Talix model is, you know, in some ways from an external perspective, if you take a quick glance, you think, oh, this is just another brand. But when you learn about what's happening on the back end, you probably can actually characterize it more as a marketplace. You're aggregating all these different suppliers across all these different product categories. You're informing them you know, what types of products that they should be manufacturing. And then you're facilitating them basically reaching a Western customer without having to lift a finger in exchange for you know, carrying the, the inventory risk themselves. Is that a fair interpretation of the Italic business model? The way I would frame it is we essentially want to be providing what I call like private label as a service. So all of the infrastructure necessary, all the platform kind of technology and tools, specifically it's it's the technology, the payment orchestration, the operational network, and the uh, access to, uh, most importantly, the access to a global market that is essentially necessary to turn a manufacturer in a turnkey way without having without them needing to invest significant time or capital into a merchant of their own. And that's what happens kind of underneath the hood. And to be honest with you, like I think we've only scratched the surface on the consumer side for the past couple of years. We started in 2018. So the past two and a half years now, we've really only focused on the supply side. You know, the first year we visited 150 factories in Europe and, and in Asia, and only two said yes. And over time, we've gotten much, much better at this. But I think it's a very, very hard pitch to convince these manufacturers to take any level of risk outside of their risk tolerance, which isn't high to begin with. But I think on, on the flip side, if you can demonstrate like, hey, you really don't have to do much. We've done all the hard kind of heavy lifting. And all you have to do is basically take inventory risk of your own and become a merchant on our platform. Uh, and you can access two to three times higher margin and thereby get higher yield on your existing production capacity. That's really the whole point of the, the merchant pitch. I would describe it as a marketplace underneath the hood as well. We haven't made it super clear to the customers yet. We have a long ways to go, I think, in terms of really ironing out that customer value prop and building out that customer side of the business. And I think to your point, there's a lot more that I think happens underneath the hood that's interesting than meets the eye initially, but that's something we're working on. So I think that's just an optical change that we'll have to get over over in the next, uh, hopefully the year or two. Makes sense. I think we're in the early days of kicking off a pretty exciting flywheel, which is you can get into, actually maybe my next question is, how would you define the value proposition of Italic to the customer and how do you get them to trust you? But as you scale up demand, you know, that inherently gives you more leverage with manufacturers, which will probably allow you to occupy more and more, quote unquote, share of wallet or share of production from a manufacturer yeah. and innovate more on products and get more demand. So I think the flywheel is is exciting to envision. Yeah, the, I'm just curious how you get the demand side going for iDoc. The customer value proposition is very straightforward. We are essentially pitching it as a digital version of Costco where we offer annual membership and in return, customers can shop all sorts of products ranging from cookware to bedding to apparel to accessories and so on and so forth. And our spin on it is that we went and found the same manufacturers as high-end brands, but we sell those same products essentially at prices where we don't make money. So you know, it tends to be 50, 60, sometimes even 70 or 80% less than what those current comparable direct-to-consumer brands charge, and even more so kind of compared to the legacy incumbents in each category. So longer term, what we really focus on as a business is the concept of a flywheel. 
And I know a lot of people toss around this term like network effects and economies of scale and, and so on and so forth. But I think because we literally deal with physical products, logistics, infrastructure, and supply chain, that's where economies, the term originated, right? It is very, very clear to us that if we are able to acquire more members, then we're able to have leverage to convince more manufacturers to join our platform as merchants. The more merchants we have, the more products we can develop and sell to customers. And uh, whenever we launch a new uh, product or category, we see the ability for us to convert net new customers who previously might not have been interested in it um, in italic, um, you know, join. So I think um, uh, for us, like the consumer side of the businesses is not like we're not trying to build a sexy, you know, um, new New York brand that's like here for five years and hot. And then, you know, we're, we're out in in, uh, in, in 10. It's uh, we're really trying to build something that's of substance, like the end goal for us is to build the next generation everything store, you know, following in the footsteps of what Sears did 100 years ago, Walmart, Costco, Amazon, you know, so on and so forth. And I think this time, our switch that we're trying to flip is thinking, educating the customer to think about buying straight from the source as opposed to buying through a brand and still getting the same level of quality and design that they would expect, but for a much lower price point. And I think the main question we, we get is like, how do you do that? Is this too good to be true? And we get a lot of skepticism, but I think the more we invest into the infrastructure that allows us to spin that flywheel faster, whether that's getting products out sooner or acquiring members more efficiently, we've seen that basically that's our job. It's just like we want to build the infrastructure to move all three of those a little bit faster, a little bit better every day. Makes sense. I'd love to dive a little bit into the specifics of the strategy, simply just kind of around what categories you even decide to have a presence in. And then would also love to just understand how you think about your constraints. Is it tough to widen your selection across multiple categories or multiple manufacturers because you need to be able to drive a specific amount of volume to manufacturers in the early days to retain them and keep them on the marketplace? We'd love to just understand a little bit around kind of what the tipping points are to to get a supplier successful, you know, in this model and while still driving yeah. satisfaction to the to the consumer. So the second question is easier to answer. The way I view marketplaces, and this is not specific to Italic, but it's you're either over, in the early days at least, it's like a pendulum where you either over-index on supply or you're over-indexing on demand. And it's impossible, I think, to, to get the balance right immediately. But I think different investors and different founders have different opinions on this. Some people say like demand's the only thing that matters and you know you could optimize for supply all day, which is true. At the same time, if you over-optimize, for demand and you don't have unique differentiated supply in our case like we have to really focus on supply because we're not bringing on branded merchandise that already has an audience around it so it's really important for us to kind of focus on the quality of the supply that we have i think that can be disastrous as well in which if you're not providing liquidity to your merchants on the platform you know they're going to leave or go off platform and if you're not providing enough new or interesting merchandise or supply to the customers they're going to elsewhere or churn so that's something we think about every day and i think the way we specifically talk about product selection and merchandising is we really think about it from two lenses, I guess three lenses, the first of which is just, does this product spin that flywheel faster? Meaning, does it either allow us to acquire customers more efficiently who previously might not have been interested, or does it allow us to retain our current cohorts of, of customers who are currently members and that delight them so that they're going to stay for longer? And I think the way we frame this is in the two following ways is just very simply, it's quantitative and it's qualitative, where on a quantitative level, we're serving at all touch points. And, uh, and we ask the same question, which is like, what do you want to see us make? And what we typically see is two kind of groups where 
you know, for people who are existing members, it's more often variants of existing products. And, uh, and for new products, new customers who do not ultimately join the membership, it's products that we currently don't have or categories that we don't have. So when we introduce a product, we always look for either incremental lift on the ability to acquire the next customer or to better retain the current customer. So I think that's the quantitative side. And the qualitative, it's very straightforward. It's, is this product... Um, logistically straightforward to fulfill, meaning it doesn't require any specific unique, like let's say cold chain logistics for perishables. That's not something we're going to do you know, anytime soon or furniture. Although the more products we offer and the more sophisticated our supply chain is to adopt you know, more and more categories, but today we're not there. Two, is it mature of a product online in which we're not, we obviously don't want to be the first ones bringing a, a category online. And then lastly, is it a product that inherently has high margins historically so that our value proposition is very aggressive where you, know, you can be saving sometimes the entire membership fee in one order, which is what we kind of strive to see. So that's how we think about merchandising. And it's very kind of data driven, like it's less gut driven, if you will, on merchandising than normal. But, you know, I think it's worked for us. I'm a huge beneficiary of what you were just describing. I love when you expand across categories and deliver tremendous value. I uh, had spent way too much money at Lululemon historically, and you recently launched men's activewear. And I can get the same quality shorts at literally, I think, a third or a fourth the cost, which has just been (laughs) a huge source of value for me. That coupled with the candles that you did some amazing product marketing around recently, they're the best candles that someone could buy and they're priced so aggressively. I think anyone listening to this should check out Italic Candles and make a purchase. I think you can get whole on your membership just buying your annual supply of candles alone. But you mentioned something very interesting, which is the importance of both qualitative and quantitative skill set in the early days as you scale this up. I'm curious how that translates into who you look for on your team. When it comes to recruiting, what are the attributes of people that you're screening heavily for and and that you think is necessary for a person to be successful at Italic? Attributes and culture are these like really nebulous things that I think most startups specifically like loosely understand as like being important, but don't really know how to enforce. And I think, you know, I saw that firsthand with my first company where I think startups sometimes have a stigma of being like, Broy or fratty or what have you, and loaded with salespeople at B2B for sure. And for us, like that, frankly, was what we experienced. And I think for Italic, we were much more deliberate about like what culture, what type of business we want to build. And ultimately, that comes down to the people you, you bring in and how you screen and build that screening process. So I think for Italic, like we were very deliberate from day one. We are not a family. We screen for high performance and high conviction. I think there's also a, another like heuristic in startup land where it's like the best candidates are sold and they're like not actively looking. And I also think that's not true. It's you want people who are genuinely excited about what you're doing and get it, less so people who you have to like pitch hard on getting it. So I think in the early days, at least like those really were important for us. Like we're looking for people who are genuinely kind hearted. Like we have a saying internally, which is like, you could have the best perks in the world, the best, you know, office, the company could be exploding in growth. But like if you have coworkers you don't enjoy you know, working with, ultimately you're not going to enjoy work. So I think we really screened for this type of person. It generally lended to finding people who were fairly mature, like professional and a little bit older as well. So you know, our average age is probably around 30. The team is mostly women and we've been global from day one as well. So we have a team in China and the Philippines and also distributed across the US. And I think in order to have this distributed culture that works at an earlier time in company history, I think you really have to be disciplined about who you're bringing on. So 
ultimately, I think like that's how we would kind of describe it. I would also say like from a pure mission, vision, values type of framework, like again, these are things that I think like startups will put off for a long time. Like oh, I can figure it out when I get to the B or the C or whatever it is. I feel like the sooner you actually like indoctrinate it, I think it's not just like words, but you actually have to, you know, screen specifically off of them. So ours are, you have to hit at least three of these like from me to get an offer. So you have to dare to be bold. You have to put the team before your, we have team, teammate self, dare to be bold, play the long game. I could go through the values, but like if you don't hit those values, like I think it's very non-objective, but I think ultimately the company culture is a reflection of you as a founder. So long story short, I think like the type of people we look for are generally like more so experienced people who we don't have to train or learn on the job and less generalist. And I think for us, that's worked well, but uh, you know, for many companies, I'm sure that would not do well. So from a cultural perspective, it's something that I, I largely agree with, which is it can maybe be generalized to this notion of hiring missionaries, not mercenaries, mm-hmm. especially when you're a startup and you're resource constrained and you have to get people to value the equity you know, I think what you really end up looking for then is someone who, you know, really is passionate about the problem that is being addressed and hopefully solved. And, and also someone who just intrinsically kind of fits with the rest of the people on the team and is willing to collaborate and, and really dive in to help kind of further this mission. And similarly, you know, even in venture, I'd say we look for similar types of people. We have our company values very kind of thoroughly laid out ourselves and our rubric when we screen for investors is very similar you know this notion of like intrinsic curiosity to learn about startups and to learn about investing this notion of working as one being part of a family and a few others that you know we don't overly publicize but i do think it's incredibly important for startups to kind of indoctrinate in the early days because it's hard to fix later on, right? Once you've hired oh, all super. these people, it's very hard to retroactively instill any of these things. It's so hard. That is, I think, the single-handedly, like the hardest thing a founder can do is fix culture later on. Because truthfully, you can't fix it. You have to like fire the team or a good amount of it. So it's not a, <laughs> I guess, any founder who might be listening, it's like, these aren't just words that are like, oh, we value fairness or kindness. Like It really does matter a lot. And I think most of the times people realize that like too far, too late. So for Italic, it's very important from day one that we did that. My last question, Jeremy, is just a futurist question, meaning if you're looking into the future and thinking about how e-commerce in particular evolves in the U.S., what do you kind of see or what are you looking out for? What do you expect to happen? Do you expect us to continue this journey of catching up to how commerce looks in the East? Are we now kind of followers in terms of how e-commerce is going to be innovated upon? We'd love to get your views on that topic broadly. You know, this is an area we spend a lot of time talking and thinking about as an ecosystem. Oftentimes, I find the conversations very siloed, where it's like, hey, like right now, for example, live stream, live shopping is like very hot, right? And hopefully, I think maybe the next trend might be like, hey, there's this trend called like C2M, where the customer to manufacturer. So that might be the next trend. Honestly, I think like the industry, my take on it is that it's very hard to tell commerce, even though it's, I would say, in the early days of the Western ecosystem, I think like commerce has largely played out into a couple models where you have online commerce, at least uh, has played out into ones where you have three models either being like you build a brand and you build a premium brand, you build a retailer, which is increasingly difficult these days, or you build a marketplace. And uh, and most of the times, if you're building a marketplace, 
that comes in the form of being either secondhand through companies like Curtsy, which I, you and I are both a big fan of, or some other marketplace that is a little bit more nuanced or, or hidden or smart, where it's not so obvious that it's the marketplace model where they're not taking inventory. And that's where I think, for the most part, like where the Western e-commerce has been in the past maybe three to five years in terms of innovation. I think, you know, it's interesting because if you do look east, people say like Amazon has such a deep entrenchment in the Western ecosystem. And it's true, but it's not to the degree that Ali had in, in China, specifically like even for direct consumer brands who will never consider selling on Amazon. If you want to enter China, like you have to sell through Tmall, right? So Allbirds, for example, they don't have a, a Chinese storefront. They sell through Tmall. If you're any of the luxury houses like from LVMH or Carrying or you know, Richemont, you're still partnering with Ali to try to access the customer. So I would actually go as far as to say like the marketplace entrenchment that Ali has over the Asian ecosystem is probably a good pulse of where like the long tail of where Amazon could go for the retail ecosystem in terms of where the long term retail like play might turn out. The retailer model might play out in terms of the brand model. I really don't. I think it's just like this is going to be less of a venture backed model and more so just like, hey, I'm going to build a brand online and I'm going to sell it for a slight premium. And that's that and I'll sell it like on Etsy or Amazon or whatever it is, I think the actual interesting stuff happens on the fringe and the marketplace where things like oftentimes look small to begin with, and then they grow quite large in terms of the addressable market because of the internet scale. And this could be in the things of like collectibles or the things that are secondhand, which now are huge industry, which if you look back maybe 10, 15 years, I don't think people would have actually said like, hey, this is going to be big. So I don't know. It's like, there's a really long way to say, I just don't know. I think my opinion is, I think like a lot of new models are going to come out soon. But if you want to compete directly against the incumbents, I think you have to have a very, very infrastructurally heavy model such as Italics. So super helpful perspective, Jeremy. Really interesting to hear. I guess one of the main thoughts on my mind, and and it might tie into what you were saying about live shopping is in the West, it seems like social and entertainment is almost still fully decoupled from commerce. And I think when I look at startups in the East, that's not the case, right? With Taobao, live and social kind of experiences are are natively coupled with commerce experiences. And so I think that's one question I'd love to get your opinion on. Like, do you think in the West we'll continue to see social and commerce be fully decoupled with Amazon and Google really as the beneficiaries in between? They kind of have the highly engaged, retained social user on one side and They're able to monetize brands and merchants on the other in the form of advertising. Do you think that those two things kind of blend together and maybe we shift off of an advertising-based commerce economy and more towards a native commerce-based economy? Oh, man. (laughs) I feel like I could talk about this all day, right? (laughs) One thing that's interesting about Asian marketplaces, at least, is that they actually don't... You know, in the West, like when we talk about any marketplace, it's like, okay, what's the commission? What's the take rate? And as a function of that, like how big can this business get? But in Asia, for example, I'll I'll use like Ali or even Xiaomi or or Pinduoduo as an example. Like they don't monetize through GMV. And in fact, you know, generally it's accepted that Ali has a much larger GMV as an entity than Amazon does with third party as well as marketplace combined. and um, But Ali doesn't monetize through uh, take rates, but instead through advertising. So, But it's through merchant advertising. And I think you see this to a degree in the West with companies like Instacart and where you get like, you're able to be promoted in the feed. And I think the monetization model for a lot of these like Western marketplaces hasn't proved out in a late stage quite yet. So Wish has tried to do this as well. So I think it's a little bit too early to tell like where the end state is in terms of like the current crop of later stage marketplaces. Both on the later stage as well as the earlier side, I think everyone says that the grass is greener. Like as a commerce company, you always want to be going to media for your owned channel, if you will, because every other CPM is going to grow. 
But on the flip side, as a media company, it's very, very hard to monetize like off of advertising alone. So you venture into commerce where the overall TAM is many times larger than the entire market of online advertising, even though that's where Google and Facebook currently are. So I think if you play that out like 15, 20 years down the line, my guess is commerce companies will have in-house media arms and less so the opposite. Or maybe just because commerce is so much, the transaction volume on a per customer basis is so much larger through commerce to monetize through commerce than through advertising. But that's one that's, I think, very, very hard to forecast. But I think both could work. But I, I think like not many companies have tried the Asian model of like not monetizing GMB and waiting till like you're massive to monetize off of advertising uh, quite yet. So we'll see. In part because investors like us aren't patient enough, I think. I do wonder, to your point, what the end state of e-commerce business models look like. We always say at Index, your take rate is my opportunity. The best way to bootstrap a marketplace is to just undercut an existing marketplace right, on right. take rate and to try to siphon as much demand and supply as possible. So you know, does that mean at end state that it's not the transactions directly that are being monetized, but you know, the distribution that you're offering for one side to the other that you monetize in the form of advertising. Well, it'll be really interesting to see that unfold in the US. Amazon did that with Quincy and Alibaba. Actually, that's how they started against eBay, where eBay had a head start and they just undercut the fees. And yeah, you could say that to a degree with, I think Goat is actually a very interesting example in the States, which I know Index is involved with. So where it's more infrastructurally heavy, so they can command a higher take rate compared to competitors out there. I don't know. It's very fun to watch as an observer. The discussion will continue, I'm sure, Jeremy. Yeah. I'm so excited about the future of Italic. I really appreciate you sharing all of the stories from the journey so far. And you know, hopefully we can have you back on the podcast sometime. Sounds great. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Talk soon. Yeah.